the outline of Psalm 17 on the board. And you also see some connections between Psalm 16 and Psalm 17. All of these, the Psalms are placed the way they are for a reason. Is that reason always able to detect? No. But but they're placed where they are with some purpose. And the word fullness in 1611 is the word satisfied in 1715. Same Hebrew word. Now, that word is translated abundance in 1415. It's translated by a different English word, but it's the same Hebrew word. The word refuge, the word night, the Lord's right hand, the request that God keep me, and the statement that my feet will not be moved. I think it actually says in this path, in this passage, my feet have not slipped, but it's the same Hebrew expression. And the word portion. Now, there may be more that I'm missing, but those are some connections between Psalm 16 and Psalm 17. Obviously, uh, these uh, these help us connect these passages. Now, this is the outline that I... This is one outline that I saw, that I thought uh, was, was good. This is based... It has three petitions, and between them, a description of David and a description of the wicked. Petition one, he asked God to hear. In petition two, there's a description of him. In petition uh, two, he asked God to help. And understand these, to some degree, overlap. And then in the third petition, he asked God to judge his enemies. That is not the perfect outline of Psalm 17. But it is one that helps function to help us understand the text a little bit. The word which is used for prayer at the beginning of the psalm is a word that's only used at the beginning of five psalms, I believe. And so it's not our typical word. I want to want to say this to you in the beginning. Uh, I, another way to look at Psalm 17 is there's three main characters. Now, who would you figure is one of those three I'm going to call main characters? David has to be one of them. Well, David's one. That wasn't the one I was hoping you all would say, though. David, God, yeah. God, David, and his enemies. Now, all of those are, are true. We know God is to be a key character. And so that's another way to look at this psalm. God, what does it say about God? What does it say about David? What does it say about David's enemies? But I want to ask you to help me during this class and at the end of the class. You know at the end of the class, we will after we study the psalm, we want to deal with how the psalm points to Jesus. I have a couple of specific points 
but I recognize this could be filled out in great detail. So I'm going to let you be the source of my insightful, uh, you know, be a source of this. And if you really make a good idea, you may even be mentioned on a podcast that may have 50 listeners. So, (laughs) so, I mean, what better incentive can that be? It'd be worldwide. Um, But let's read Psalm, Psalm 17. A prayer of David. Here are just calls. Here are just calls, O Lord. I think that should go with the first line. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men by the words of your lips, I have kept from the path of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. From those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling hearts. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. For men with your hand, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you filled with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Now, in this opening petition, in verse 1, you have a threefold prayer, a threefold prayer that God will listen to the psalmist, that God will listen to David. Here are just calls, O Lord. Give heed to my cry, give ear to my prayer. All of these are just begging God intensely to hear prayer. It is very fascinating. In 1 Kings 8, we have one of the longest prayers of the Bible where Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple. And it is largely a prayer that God will hear prayer that is offered at the temple. And so a part of biblical prayer is just pleading with God to hear our prayer. Hear 
give heed, give ear. And he affirms his innocence. Now, he's going to do this more fully in this description of him in verses 3 through 5. But he affirms his innocence in verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. I want you to pay attention to these three main characters, God, David, and his enemies, and how often it describes their body parts of each of these main characters, particularly the mouth. Here, give give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. He is confident. He is confident that God will hear his prayer. He is confident because he feels he is innocent, verse 1, and because he feels that God will do right. Genesis 18.25, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And this is what you see in this passage. So verses 1 and 2, a prayer that God will hear prayer. And then in verses 3 through 5, here is an affirmation of David's innocence. In verse 3, you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you find nothing. Now, those words, tried and tested, tried and tested, these are words that that will be used often uh, in the Psalms and often in the Bible. In both of those words, in verse 3, tried, tested, are used for the refining of metals. And just as metals, precious metals are put to the fire in order to refine them and strengthen them, so you have tried me, you have tested me. Now this is Psalm 17, verse 3. And I say that specifically because in Proverbs 17, verse 3, The Bible says, as the furnace, the refiners for silver and the furnace for gold, so the Lord tests hearts. Proverbs 17.3 also shows us that God tests, that God tries, and that His purpose is constructive. The Lord tests hearts. But here in this particular case, God gives a thorough examination of David. If you go to the doctor sometimes and you get a thorough examination, you may be nervous if you're expecting something to be wrong. It is going to be nervous uh, to stand before God who sees our hearts and not just our outward action and to give an account to Him. And yet, He says, you've tested me, you've tried my heart, You visited me by night, and he says, you find nothing. David was pronounced clean, given a fresh bill of health, if you make a comparison to the doctor. How had David been able to walk innocently? 
he said, as for the deeds of men, verse 4, Psalm 17, verse 4, as for the deeds of men, by the words of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. David said in verse 1, that he has not issued his prayer from deceitful lips. He said in verse 3, that he has purposed his mouth will not transgress. But now he speaks of God's lips. And it's because of God's lips that his own lips have not been deceitful. It is because of God's lips that he can muzzle his mouth so that he doesn't say anything that he shouldn't. As Psalm 119 verse 11 says, What does it say? Did I might not sin against you? Did you want us to finish that? No, I, 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 well, yes, I did after I realized I couldn't finish it. Uh, so yes, your word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. Psalm 119.11. I knew it had something to do with the subject, but um, I typed in that passage in my brain and you see uh, it has not been wired yet. Um, that gets worse. Yeah, well, I'm sure. I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you for that encouragement. Um so, but my steps, my steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Now, again, in our age, and, and this, there's a good thing to this, that we have been stressing humility, that we stress humility, that we stress not being proud but it has led people to think that anytime you read words like this in Scripture, that uh, these people, are they being proud? Are they violating? No. They know they're not guilty of what they're charged. They know they've been not guilty. I want to tell you a statement you're going to hear if you're ever involved in prison ministry. If you're ever involved in prison ministry and you, and you, and even when you don't try to talk to them about what they've done, but talk to them about what they need to do, there was sometime you're going to hear this statement. I'm not guilty of what they charged me with. I'm not guilty of what I'm in here for. Now, I've done other things that I need to be in here for, but I'm not guilty of what they charged me. But that's all of us in life, isn't it? That's all of us. The psalmist is not denying he's been guilty of any sin. He's not stating absolute perfection when he says that God tested me and found nothing. But he does know that he is innocent of what he is accused of. Now, we don't know what he is accused of in this specific context. That is not revealed to us. But we do see that God that God knows his innocence and that he has he has continued to be faithful to cling to God's path and has not forgotten God's will. Psalm 7 that we've studied earlier uh, that is uh, that 
asserts the same kind of thing. We will see the same kind of thing when we get to Psalm 26. Any, any questions right there? Any, any comments that you have? When you read this, it makes me think of Psalm 139, verse 23, where he says, Search me, try yeah. the same uh, mindset in David. Uh, when he's, that's what make, he, makes him a man after God's own heart. Although he, he strayed from that psalm you know, in his life. But yeah. he always returned to that. You're exactly right. It's Psalm 30, 139. Maybe the most intense in describing the searching gaze that God applies to our hearts. But this, this, the piling up of terms does remind us of Psalm 139. Uh, that you searched me and known me. Here you've tried, you've visited me, you've tested me. So um, I think that was particularly, you were referring to verses 23 and 24, weren't you, Bob? Yes. Okay, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. But, but the whole psalm emphasizes God's omniscience and God's, therefore, um, His searching of the psalmist. Any other thoughts? Hey, verse 6. I've called upon you, and you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Now, he's already stated in verse 1, Give heed to my cry, give ear to my prayer. And here in verse 6, he says basically the same thing. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. And in verse verse 7, and by the way, verse 7, relatively long verse, isn't it? There are six words in Hebrew in this verse. Now, some of them have suffixes attached, but you also notice uh, in verse, or verse 7, uh, you also notice a couple of um, italicized words, which shows they've added them to make sense. But verse 7, as the psalmist is making this petition to God, and he begs God to hear him, he says, wondrously, show your loving kindness. Show your loving kindness. And their loving kindness is our word kessid, which is used so frequently in the book of Psalms. We, we talked about it before. We preached a lesson on it based on Psalm 5 verse 7. But God's loving kindness, wondrously show your loving kindness. O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. couple of connections with Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, 1, I have taken refuge in you. In Psalm 17, 7, a reference to taking refuge. The Lord's right hand is joy in Psalm 16, 11. Here there is salvation. O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. From those who rise up against me. Keep me, he says. Again, a connection. Just as he asked, keep me, this is the same Hebrew word with the same suffix translated preserve me in 16.1 in um, the New American Standard Bible. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Generally, a point is made 
that the apple of one's eye is the pupil of one's eye. Now, I, I was always um, very sensitive about my eyes. And that was one of the things that made it difficult when I was 14 to start wearing contact lenses. Because you so instinctively blink when you see that finger coming to you. And I had one eye doctor that over the years, he, after I'd worn contacts 20, 30 years, he wanted to put the contact in for me. And he kept, and I said, no, no, let me do this. Okay. Let me do this. I trust my own finger. I don't trust anybody else's going toward my eye. We're sensitive about that. And that's a way to describe God's care for us. Keep me like you would keep the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now those are two different expressions. Two different images. One Keep me like the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings. Let me ask you as you keep your finger in Psalm 17. Turn back to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, the Bible is talking about Israel in the wilderness. And the Bible says in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 32, He found him in a desert land and the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Verse 11. Like an eagle that sets, that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spreads his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions, on his wings. So images very similar to Psalm 17 verse 8. Deuteronomy 32 verses 10 and 11 and all of Deuteronomy 32 is talking about God's care for the nation of Israel as a whole. What Psalm 17 verse 8 may be doing is asking God to care for David just as surely as he has cared for the nation. To express the same amount of concern Keep me as the apple of your eye, as the pupil of your eye, just like you did for Israel. You guarded him as the pupil of his eye. And just like an eagle or a bird spreads its wings over, spreads its wings over its chicks and protects it. God had done to Israel in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11. Please do, please do for me what you have done for us as a people. Now, that phrase, and Lord willing, I plan to send out some notes uh, this evening. I know they will be imperfect, and I know there's many of them. But if you want to look at some of these key phrases that I know, I can give you a lot of other references in the Psalms to this phrase... Uh, that God keeps us like a um, a bird would keep his chicks. For example, in Psalm 91 verse 4, Psalm 91 verse 4, the Bible tell, tells us He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings 
you may seek refuge. He is begging for God to protect him, protect him as he would the most sensitive parts of his body, to protect him as a chick would protect, as a, as a hen would protect her baby chicks, because his enemies are real. Back in Psalm 17, in Psalm 17, verse 9, from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. The enemies are surrounding him, the enemies are many. Protect me like you would protect. The apple of your eye. Keep me the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. A picture of love and care in the midst of enemies who are deadly, as the New American Standard Bible states. In verse 10... They have closed their unfeeling heart. They close their heart. Um, They close the fat. It can be translated. Do any of your translations have that? The word fat? New New King James does have that word fat. Our song will use that language as well. Okay, very good, very good. Um, the word fat in the Bible doesn't deal with so much a bodily weight, as we might think of the term, but it deals with one who is insensitive to God and to others. That sense, they are fat. Often they have prospered. Often they have lived affluently and they have lived in reckless disregard of others. But they have closed their unfeeling heart. You notice the word heart is in italics. And it says, with their mouth, in verse 10, they speak proudly. Now contrast... The mouth of these wicked people, these deadly enemies of verse 9, who speak proudly, verse 10, notice the contrast between them and David. In verse 1, David says, Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. In verse 3, David said, I purpose that my mouth will not transgress. So David guarded his lips in verse 1 and verse 3, but his enemies don't guard theirs in verse 10. David guarded his lips in verse 4 because God's lips, by the words of your lips in verse 4, God's words are pure, God's words are tested and tried, but here in verse 10, the enemy speaks Proudly, They close their hearts. Their mouths are still open though. And in verse 17, verse 11, 17, 11, they now surround us in our steps and set their eyes, again a body part, to cast us down to the ground. They are always looking for an opportunity to destroy. In verse 12, he's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in hiding places. 
look look back in Psalm 10. Psalm 10 verses 8 and 9. And notice the similarity of language. Psalm 10 8 and 9. He sits in lurking places of the village. Villages in the hiding places. He kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in the hiding places as a lion uh, in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted. He draws him into his net. The wicked is the wicked are often compared to lions hunting their helpless prey. You see that in Psalm 10 verses 8 and 9. Look back in Psalm 7. Psalm 7 verses 1 and 2. O Lord my God, in You I have taken refuge. Save me from all who pursue me and deliver me. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. So Psalm 7, 2, Psalm 10, verse 9, Psalm 17, and verse 12. The wicked are compared to lions who rip and tear their prey. And that is how the psalmist feels in the midst of his enemies. He is... He's helpless before them. Unless God intervenes. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how much security you have. You're always vulnerable to attack, aren't you? I was a high school senior when in March of that year a really normal guy and I say that from the standpoint there's no sophistication Maybe we should say abnormal person with not much of a plan almost killed the president of the United States. We're all vulnerable, aren't we? And particularly those of us who are believers, who live in the midst of a wicked world, we're always vulnerable. Because there are people like lions ready to tear any prey. And it's only by the grace of God that any of us have lived as long as we have. I wonder if I knew how many times that I walked by places and passed mass murderers or was coming in contact with them here or there... Or how many dangerous situations I encountered driving all night to various places. If I knew that, would my heart be comforted at God's protection? Or would I be terrified to know how real the danger is? The psalmist senses how real the danger. And the psalmist knows His protection is God. 
any any thoughts right there or questions? When I talked about the body parts of these main characters, again, the contrast is fascinating because while the word heart is in italics in verse 10 in the New American Standard, it's obviously a reference to their fat heart, their insensitive heart. But in contrast, look at verse 3. God tried my heart. And so the contrast, what he said about David's body parts and what he said about the enemies is... Totally opposite. Totally opposite. In verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. Okay, right now I want to trust that we have written this down. The word arise in verse 13. Same root word used in verse 7. Where the psalmist said, You are the Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against you. The psalmist has people rising up against him and the answer is to call on the Lord to arise. So he begs God, arise, confront him. Bring him low. Stop him in his tracks. Stop him in his tracks. Confront him. Bring him low. Deliver him with your sword. God is pictured as a warrior who brings down the mighty there in verse 13. In verse 14, from men with your hand, O God, from men of the world whose portion is this life. Whose portion is in this life. By the way, in in Psalm 16, what did the psalmist rejoice in? Where was the psalmist's inheritance? Where was the psalmist's portion? In Psalm 16. In God. In verse 5, Psalm 16, verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. The Lord is His portion. But verse 17, 14 is talking about wicked men whose portion is in this life. It's not going to get any better than this for those who rebel against God. And whatever life has to give them, whether it be little or whether it be much, that's it. Because their portion is simply in this world, in this life. But our portion, as 16.5 says, is in God. Now, I'm hoping that some of you do have different translations. They may not help enlighten us a great deal here. But there is the big problem, a big problem in understanding some of the, the, the specific words of Psalm uh, 17 comes in the latter part of Psalm 17, 14. I will call it here Psalm 17, 14, B. And the question is, is this 
a description of the blessing of the righteous or is this a description of the abundance or blessing of the wicked what is the case here it's difficult to determine I'll read the whole verse. I'll call attention to the part I'm particularly focusing on. Verse 14. From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Here's our part. Whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their baby. Is this talking about God's gracious care for righteous people? And that God gives them all they need to eat and blesses them with children and abundance? Or is this talking about the wicked whose portion is in this life and describing if they experience these things, and they may, they may have full stomachs and many children and be able to leave them a good inheritance. But that's all they're going to get. In Job 21, verses 7 through 16, gives that kind of picture of the wicked. Psalm Job 21, 7 through 16. Who the ESV, I know we have the ESV represented out there. Uh, Don, go ahead and read that. Uh, verse 14, and pay attention to this latter part, but, but, but go ahead and read the whole thing if you want. For men by your hand, O Lord, for men of the world whose portion is in this life, you will fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Okay. So it doesn't really help us. We still have the same problem. And they don't seem to take a position there. I know you said earlier, David, you had the New King James. Okay. Uh, it reads, uh, With your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life, and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions for their baby. Okay, I didn't catch every word, but it sounded very similar, didn't it? It sounded very similar. And Christy brought her NIV for such a time as this tonight, just for this time. Um, Where's Jen and Micah? Those are our designated NIV people. Uh, But uh, go ahead, uh, Christy. Okay, now that seemed to take a position, didn't it? You store up wealth for those you cherish. John, you had a thought. That must be the NIV 1984. 
because the current NIV takes an imprecatory slant. Ooh. Okay, let's read it. Let's hear it. It says, By your hand save me from such people, Lord, from those of this world whose reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it, and may there be leftovers for their little ones. Okay. That fits. That doesn't sound like a good thing. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, John. That fits verse 13. Yeah. Yeah. It does It does tie with verse 13, because verse 13 is has an imprecatory element. Um, with your sword, O Lord. Deliver me, and obviously bring him low, and confront him. Now that is interesting because I was—I I knew the older reading and was not aware of the newer reading. I have trouble deciding this too. I'll tell you though, I do think, to me, if I have to say one, and, and it is with uncertainty, understand. I think I lean to the fact that this is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. That verse 14 is describing their abundance. And verse 15, now notice that word, in that word in 1714, abundance. That word, and why does the New American Standard do this? I don't know. I don't know. This word abundance is the same word that is translated satisfied. Now, I recognize one's a verb and one's not. But, 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 you know, that's the same Hebrew word. Do you see that by those different translations? No. Shouldn't you put it in some way that makes that easy for the for the English reader to see? We're dealing with the same word. I think he's contrasting the abundance of the wicked. If, if I have to choose, I will say that. And being satisfied with God. In verse 5, he says, as for me, I. Now, really the Hebrew text just says I. It just says, I, the Hebrew text doesn't make a contrast, but it says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. But I think there is one. One is sat, one is looking, his portion is in this life, and all he gets, his food, his children, that's going to be all he has. But, he says, I am satisfied with your likeness. For a Christian, for, for the non-Christian, this is the best it gets. Even if it's not that great, this is the best it gets. For a Christian, the best is always yet to come, regardless of how good it is in the moment. I shall behold your face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied with your likeness. What is it that will satisfy us? The righteous are satisfied with God Himself. The wicked are simply satisfied with their abundance. That's all they're looking for. Have you found what you're looking for? Maybe most of the world is looking the wrong place. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Now, I don't know 
if the psalmist, how deeply he was thinking of eternity when he said those words. But we know those words have a deeper fulfillment in Jesus. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. I tried to preach on heaven Sunday. I think I'm going to try that a couple of more weeks. I want to tell you. I don't think we can adequately summarize that subject or adequately describe what it will be. One song that we sing says just one glimpse of Him in glory will all the toils of life repay. We'll have more to say about that, Lord willing. Anything right now just on this song? Anything on this song? Okay, I hope we've done justice to it. We've not uncovered every stone. We've not said all that could be said, but but I hope we've done justice to it. Christy and Isaiah, make sure you're writing these things down. I'm writing down these ideas as my own and plagiarizing and sending them out to everybody in notes later tonight. Uh, But how about Jesus in Psalm 17? How, How do we see Jesus? Where do we see Jesus in this Psalm? What are some what are some thoughts that you have? And and I've got I've got a couple, but I'm going to give you first shot. You all listen patiently, week after week. What do you see, David? You hesitant to raise the hand, but wanting to. So this is a, this strikes me as a little obscure, but in the latter half of verse 13, deliver my soul from the wicked with thy sword. That strikes me as what Peter tried to do. Okay. I don't think that's obscure at all. I think that's a pretty good point. That, that, the, that 1713 with the sword here, but, but it's not a comparison completely. You understand that. That here the psalmist is asking, David is asking, deliver me by your sword and when Peter does this in Matthew 26 50-54 Jesus said put up your sword those that live by the sword will perish by the sword don't you know I can pray to my father and he would send at one time more than 12 legions of angels Jesus forgoes deliverance that was requested by David So, I don't think it's obscure at all. I think that's very obvious to see. But again, we're not making all of these as comparisons, but we're showing how much greater Jesus is. Even than David in this service, in this in this sense. What else do you see? You see innocence there, right? Okay. You see innocence 
in Jesus. You see, innocence. Very good. And, and John, you had your hand up too? Uh, when there's this tender appeal in verse 8 of God, Jesus in Matthew 23 said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, verse 37, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Yes, isn't that powerful? And then it also appears in Luke 13, 34, and 35. Now, do you realize what John did there? And he was doing just what the Bible does. We had a couple different we have a couple different directions in the comments. What David emphasized and what Boyd emphasized are ways in which we compare the innocent sufferer of Psalm 17 to Jesus. What John did is compare Jesus to the God of Psalm 17. And both are true, aren't they? Both of them are true. Jesus is the innocent sufferer And and by the way, he particularly emphasizes in this that I have not spoken with deceitful lips and I have purposed with my mouth that I will not transgress. Do you remember what is said of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2? In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says... He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 Who while being reviled did not revile in return. While suffering he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So Jesus is absolutely innocent and particularly He is innocent in the fact there is no guile in His mouth. He does not revile when He is reviled. He does not utter threats. Jesus is the innocent sufferer of Psalm 17. And Jesus is also the God who gathers His chicks under her wings. But you are unwilling. David? Uh, In Revelation 19, uh, the context here is clearly talking about Christ being the one sitting upon... uh, the white horse is called faithful and true in verse 11. But in verse 15, it says, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nation. Yes. And so that's a tie-in back to... Yes, it comes back to the sword here. But again, there's a little difference there, David, as you recognize, I'm sure. Here, he is not the innocent sufferer, but here... He is God bringing the sword to judge the wicked. Revelation 19 
and verse 15. In one of the address, addresses to the churches, the seven churches of Asia, he talks about having a sharp, two-edged sword. Okay, I just found it. Revelation 2, verse 12, to the church at Pergamum, the one with the sharp, two-edged sword from his mouth. So yes, you're right. You know, is Christ doing what David is asking for? Asking God to do. Here. God to do. So both of these passages have focused on how Jesus fulfills the role of the God of Psalm 17, while these ideas have emphasized the innocent sufferer. So very good. You're doing doing very well with that. Now, also just that very statement in verse seven that God is the Savior of those who take refuge in Him. If we look, if we, I didn't look up every verse and didn't write down in my notes every verse where Jesus is called Savior in the New Testament. But I trust that you know there are quite a few that use that. He is the God who saves. This this is one thing I wrote down. Who is... I, I wrote it down in four questions. How Jesus fulfills Psalm 17. Who is more of an innocent sufferer than He was? Who is more of an innocent sufferer than Jesus was? David pleads... His innocence. He pleads that he is not guilty of this particular crime. But as has been alluded to by someone earlier, David sinned and fell short at other points in his life. Who is more of an innocent sufferer than he is? Who could more truly say that I have been tried and tested and found not guilty as verse 3 does? Second, whose enemies were more wicked than his were? Whose were more wicked and violent than his enemies were? David faces real enemies. David faces deadly enemies in verse 9. He faces deadly enemies who are like a lion waiting to tear him in verse 12. But when we get to Psalm 22 which I think first refers to David's experiences and then to Jesus as the ultimate innocent sufferer. But the lion imagery is going to be used again. Whose enemies were more vile than his were and more sinister than his were? And also this psalmist begs God to vindicate him. Like in verse 2, let my judgment come from your presence, Psalm 17, 2. Do any of your translations have in Psalm 17, 2 the word vindication? New King James does. Vindication. What act vindicates the righteous sufferer any more than his resurrection? So the questions, who is more of an innocent sufferer than he was? Whose enemies are more wretched than his were? What act vindicates any more than his resurrection? And fourth, 
Who is a God who saves like He does? So those questions, you all have filled in some details. But those questions sum up ways Jesus fulfills Psalm 16, or Psalm 17, excuse me. Any questions or comments? State, state that fourth one again, please. Who is a God who can save like He does, like Jesus does? He is truly a Savior for those who take refuge at His right hand. He is the hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. He is the divine warrior who bears the sword to destroy his foes. Did you all get those down? Okay. Yeah. See? Yeah, stay on these people. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, this is the only people I've got. Okay. I mean, when I say, all these people, say, I'll get my people get in touch with you. There's my people right there. And uh, so. But thank you for that. Um, thank you. Before we, uh, we'll turn this off.